that, okay? We're keeping the kids in again and giving the kids workers a break today. Uh, so the preacher will probably not be long. And again, you say nothing when I say that. So I'm not sure how to interpret that. Last week, you said the same thing. Well, I've been, I've been doing some thinking, and maybe you've been doing some thinking as well. By our reckoning of time, and I hope you realize that God does not reckon time the way that we reckon time. I think we all learn that, those of us who were alive when the, when the millennium changed. Any of you remember all of the frenzied panic when we changed from 1999 to 2000? Any of you remember that? And, uh, you know, there's all kinds of ideas about God and this and that, and this is going to happen now, and this is going to happen now, and it's, it's coming, it's coming, you know, and what happened? Nothing happened. And I hope we realize that God's uh, uh, calendar is not our calendar at all. We, we like to think that he operates by our time and all of that, but he doesn't do that at all. So I hope you realize that. But by our reckoning of time anyway, uh, one year has passed. And that means that we are one year closer to something. What's the something you think I'm thinking about? End times, I heard someone say, what's that? What's that? S the second coming. Oh, that's a little more specific. Elections, yeah, yeah. Some some people wish there was a. Anyway, I won't I won't go there. But we, if you if you read, you know, the New Testament, if you read the Old Testament, you definitely have a a way of understanding how God interacts with this world, and there is something coming. And we're now one year closer to that something that is coming. And we can use different terms to describe it. Some people say end times. Some people say second coming. Uh, some people say rapture, which is a little more technical. But we all have this kind of picture that God is not through, finished with this, with this planet. He's not done with it. Things are not going to stay the way that they are. But there's going to be some sort of conclusion to it, some sort of um, redemption, uh, ultimately, that we are waiting for. And we're now one year closer, at least by our understanding of time. Thing is, when you read the New Testament, and you read about this, this second coming of Jesus. I mean, we just celebrated the first coming of Jesus is what Christmas is. But when you read about this second coming of Jesus in the scripture, especially in the New Testament, let me ask you, I mean, uh, you've, you've certainly read some of it. You've maybe read pieces and parts of it. You've maybe heard of it. Do you think that the people who wrote the New Testament thought that the return of Jesus was perhaps something that would happen in their lifetime? How many say yes? Okay. How many of you think that when they were writing, when they 
encounter Jesus, when you see the people in the book of Acts and their experiences in the book of Acts, when you see the circumstances in which the book of Revelation was written, how many of you think that those writers and that those people and that those first early believers had in their mind that 2,000 years later, not 200 years later, not 500 years later, but 2,000 years later, the coming of Jesus would still be a future event. You don't have your hands up. That's because when we read the New Testament, indeed, the, the feeling you get, the flavor that you get, is that these people expected it to happen very, very quickly, probably in their own lifetime. I don't think they had envisioned at all that two millennia later, the church would still be waiting. So their mindset is, it was very different than ours. Their mindset is, imagine, imagine if you today actually lived with the conviction, you actually believed that Jesus was going to return in your lifetime. And don't give me this lip service thing. You actually believed that it was actually going to happen in your actual lifetime, i.e., you probably wouldn't even die. The Lord would return before even your death. And you actually believed that to be true. Like, actually. Do you think perhaps it would alter the way that you lived? A little. I'm talking about you really believed, for, believed that Jesus was going to return in your lifetime, probably hastening your, or, or before the time that you actually died. You actually believed that he was going to come. This would radically alter your life. This would alter your decisions. This would alter probably every single aspect of your life. If you actually believe that it was actually going to actually happen in your actual lifetime, before your actual death, do you see what I'm saying? This is what those people believed. Now, even when they started dying, they had to be taught what that was. You see this in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. People start dying and he's trying to explain to them, don't grieve as those who have no hope and so on. Chapter 4 of Thessalonians, commonly read at funerals. So even that was a surprise to them. They were so utterly persuaded and convinced that the return of the Lord was close, very, very close. So our mentality is quite different 2,000 years later. Our mentality is, when is it going to happen, and why is it taking so long? So we write books. We think we've got it calculated. We come up with all of these ideas. I mean, I saw, I saw just this week, uh, one one fellow, and he's got this idea, 
And I've never heard of it, this idea before. It was extremely creative. His idea was, you know, there's a certain political figure, and this political figure is mirroring the life of an ancient king. And so therefore, what happened to this ancient king is going to happen to this political leader is some sort of mirrored you know, prediction and all of this. And I'm watching, I'm watching this individual say this in an interview with a straight face. And I just was stunned. Our, our desire to figure it out. When is Jesus really going to return? Why is it taking so long? And it's, it's almost an obsession. I mean, folks, if you, if you really want to make some money, just come up with the craziest interpretation. Take a few Bible verses, you know, learn a little bit of Greek and come up with the craziest interpretation. Go visit a publisher and go make some money. You'll make a little bit. You'll, you'll, you'll be completely incorrect in what you're saying, but that doesn't matter. <laughs> you'll be able to make a little bit of money. That's because the, the hunger that we have for this information is, is, is beyond the pale of like rationality because we want to try and figure it out because it's taken so long. And here we are one year closer. And I hear people, the church folks, and it's almost a, a bit of complaining. It's almost a kind of a veiled complaint toward God that this has not happened. Uh, you know, and we've seen these things in recent years happening and seems to be putting the pieces of the puzzle together and so on. So why has this not happened yet? What's wrong with God? Is he fallen, has he fallen asleep at the wheel? Have we misunderstood? Have we misinterpreted? Maybe we've got it all wrong. But the confidence and the conviction that these first and second century believers had in the return of Jesus, we don't. I would be persuaded to say that most Bible-believing Christians, I would be persuaded to say that the conviction level is much weaker of the return of Christ in our lifetimes as it was in theirs. They were utterly convinced of this. I don't think we are. And I think we're a little bit perhaps jaded, a little bit skeptical, a little bit aloof to it, and yet we hunger for it to happen at the same time. And I wonder when we talk about these things, if we really need to sharpen our understanding and sharpen our pencil to understand why this has taken so long and what it is we're actually waiting for. So I just want to give you some observations on this end uh, before we, we take communion for the last time in the year 2023. When we talk about the second coming of Jesus, or sometimes we use the term advent, 
You know, the first advent of Jesus is what Christmas is about. We talk about the second advent of Jesus. What we're talking about there and what is portrayed for us in the pages of the Bible is a global event. It's not a little local thing that nobody knows is happening. It's not done, you know, in, in New York City, in, in the, you know, Watchtower headquarters, you know, in New York City. I had some Jehovah's Witnesses come to my house over the last few days, and both times I did not engage them. I just took their, their literature. The Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus has already come back invisibly to set up his kingdom out of the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society in the state of New York. So anyway, they came to my door and so on, and I, I didn't tell them who I was. I just sort of played, played dumb, if you will. And I always take their literature, always. Whenever they give you literature, if you want them to come back, always take it because they will definitely, definitely 100% come back if you take their literature, because they have to fill out a little chart, because their God looks at this chart, and if they're a really good you know, witness of their doctrine, God sees that, so they have to. So I just take their literature. I said, oh, I collect it. Really, they said. Yes, I said, I collect it. And, and they said, oh, it's so good. It tells us how to live our lives and all of that. And I just, I just nod like this. And I say, well, you come at a bad time, but I'll take your literature. So I have this, this stack of all these Jehovah's Witness literature and so on. But when we talk about the coming of the Lord, folk, we're talking about a global event. We're not talking about this invisible thing that only some enlightened people see. We're talking about a global event, folks. Global. So we know a little bit about what that feels like. Uh, there's been some events that have happened in the last five years that have affected the globe. Right? There's been wars. There's been a pandemic. When it's pandemic, it means it's pan. It's all, it's all over the globe. Right? So we've seen things affect the globe in recent years. We may see more to come. This is a global event, but this is clearly out of the mouth of Jesus himself. This is a supernatural global event. Oh, now it doesn't matter if you believe in a two-stage, I'll call it a two-stage return of the Lord or one-stage. When I say two-stage, I mean uh, what's called a rapture or a removal of the church and then uh, a period of seven years and then a physical, visible return of Jesus. That's a two-stage second coming or you believe in a one-stage second coming. So you're either a rapture person or not a rapture person. It doesn't matter. You're still talking about a supernatural global event. Some people don't even believe that the supernatural exists, folks. When this thing happens, the whole world is going to see it. The whole world. Now, the thing is, the reaction that's going to happen when this happens is going to be a very curious reaction. Do you think that Jesus described this event and people are going to be happy 
when this happens or people are not going to be happy when this happens? How many of you think Jesus said people would be happy? How many of you people think Jesus said people wouldn't be happy? Okay, well, out of the mouth of Jesus, Matthew chapter 24, then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. All the nations, the peoples of the earth will mourn. Uh-oh, we're in trouble. Not a glorious, exciting occasion, but apparently one that brings great trouble to the peoples of the earth. Curious. Also in Matthew 24, as lightning from the east is visible even in the west, so shall be the coming of the Son of Man. When you see a lightning storm from so, so far away, everyone's going to know that it happens when it happens, apparently. Again, whether you're two-stage or one-stage, everyone's going to know this particular part, at least, if you're two-stage. And they will mourn when it happens. They're not going to be excited. They're not going to be jumping for joy. They're not going to be celebrating. They're going to be greatly troubled by this. Odd. What else happens at the second coming? You may not like this part. Maybe this is why people are mourning. Your freedom to decide whether you want to serve God or whether you don't is going to be removed from your life. You will not be able to choose this anymore. You will not be able to wake up in the morning and decide that you're going to submit your life to God or decide you're not going to submit your life to God. That freedom to choose will be removed from your life when Jesus returns. Oh boy, not so sure I like that. Any of you ever, I, I won't ask you to answer, but maybe some of you in this room, it's possible, you've been incarcerated. You've been in prison. It's possible. Or maybe you know somebody who's been in prison. You know somebody who's been incarcerated. You know what it's like to be in prison and be incarcerated? You know why they do that to people? Because they take away their freedom to choose. They're stuck in that prison cell because of something that they've done. No more freedom. Can't go out, can't do what they want to do. They're imprisoned. This is what's going to happen at the second coming with regards to the choice of people to either choose God or to reject God. It's too late. You cannot decide this anymore. You've waited too long and you can't. Romans chapter 14, verse 11, in the context of people judging one another, he says, why then do you judge your brother? Why do you judge your sister? Why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. Quoting from the prophet Isaiah, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee, 
Every probably means every. Will bow before me. Every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Whew. I'm not so sure I want my choice taken away. This is what's going to happen at the second coming. Isaiah 45, turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked before me. Every knee will bow. By me every tongue will swear. Wow, I mean, this sounds like your choice has somehow been removed. That's what's going to happen. There will come a time where your ability to make a decision about God will be removed. Your volition on that subject will be removed. Serious business. At the second coming, we see, again, portrayed in the pages of the scripture from the mouth of Jesus himself and through others, it's a judgment that's going to happen. It's a judgment on several things, uh, on evil, on sin, on death itself. This is what's going to happen at the second coming of Jesus. This is a very different picture of Jesus than what we see when he is placed in a manger as a baby. Very different Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and makes war. The rider on the horse who is judging and who is making war here is Jesus himself. His eyes are, are like blazing fire. That's a portrait of anger. And on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. And his name is the word of God. This is imagery describing Jesus. The armies of heaven were following him riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. Wow, this is a very different picture of Jesus than the little baby placed in a manger. He will rule them with an iron scepter from Psalm 2. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Wow. No wonder the nations are mourning. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's a, that is a profound description that Jesus is coming to judge something. He's coming to put an end to something. He's not coming to bear a cross here. He's coming to destroy. He's coming in the wrath and in the power of God. Goodness. 1 Corinthians 15, 
For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in turn. Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he, again, the he here is Jesus, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is, is death, is death itself. Maybe 2023 was a year of loss for you. I lost two good, good friends this year in 2023. The last enemy to be destroyed is death itself. Wow. This is a this powerful imagery of judgment on death itself, judgment on evil itself, judgment on unholiness. Isaiah 25, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a rich feast, a feast of food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine. I'll let you decide whether it has alcohol in it or not. Just to give you a bit of humor in this serious mood here, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples. What is the shroud? It's death itself. The sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from the earth. For the Lord has spoken. Remember the book of Revelation, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. It's borrowed here from Isaiah. This is a coming of judgment. Evil dealt a final blow. Sin and death, these are the things that will happen at the second coming, at the return of Jesus. Again, whether you're two-stage or one-stage doesn't matter People, believers agree that ultimately these things will happen. So the question for us, you know, that we struggle with on this side uh, of time, why so long? And we get a little upset in some ways. We're, we're, we're kind of divided, you know. Sometimes we, we, we think about the second coming, often we don't. When we think about it, we have all these questions. Why is it taking so long? Why did this happen? Why did that happen? Why is God seemingly allowing all of this disorder and all of this destruction on planet Earth and he's not doing anything about it? We hear about this second coming, it never happens and so on. And we get a little bit, again, jaded, a little bit confused, a little bit discouraged, whereas the First century believers were super excited because they thought that it was going to happen even before they died. To give us some insight here, we actually have this question being raised in the scripture itself. Uh, Peter writes about this. 
in in Second uh, Peter chapter three, and he gives a kind of a um, kind of a warning here, and he says, "You must understand that in the last days, last days is a broad term to try and describe the period of time before the return of Jesus." Now they would have thought last days was in their time. Last days for us still hasn't even happened yet in our time. In the last days, well, that's not really true. The period of time that we say last days actually starts in Acts chapter 2. You can see that. I'm going to self-correct a bit. In Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit of God comes, Peter says, aha, we're in this period of time called the last days. But the last days are laster days now <laughs> because we're still waiting. If, if you catch my drift, okay? In the last days, he says, scoffers will come. It's a nasty word. Scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming he promised? Hmm. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Oh, hum. Nothing new under the sun. Second coming. Let's see it. You know, we, we're not sure we believe this anymore. Look, look at the past. There's no change. And he says here, Peter, they deliberately forget hmm, that long ago by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. And by these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. Curious. So he seems to be appealing to the, the flood of Noah way back in the book of Genesis. He seems to be appealing to this, and he seems to be saying, well, people got short memories. They don't seem to remember that that happened. And here, just as an aside, he thinks that this was a global thing. He thinks the flood, at least in his view, seems to be global here. And he says, well, people have short memories. They don't remember that one. Well, by the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Again, referring to this return of Jesus to destroy, to deal with evil once and for all. And then he says this, do not forget this one thing, dear friends. Again, he's trying to encourage this audience here. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Wow. So what's the author saying here? He's saying, you've got to change your perspective. If you're believing this idea, when is this really going to happen? and you find yourself becoming skeptical and lacking conviction about this concept of Jesus returning one day, 
in a global supernatural event and you don't have the conviction that those first century believers had, you've got to change your perspective a little bit. You've got to, to use a sarcastic proverb, stop drinking their Kool-Aid. You've got to change your view on this because you don't understand that the reason why this has not happened is because God is displaying his patience with you. He's not slow at all. He's patient with you. Boy, folks, I don't know about you, but I am extremely thankful for God's patience. I don't know I, because I find myself, just observing myself, to be extremely impatient. How many of you would say, of all the you know, fruits of the Spirit, you've got a real hard time with patience? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, in some translations, you know how that's translated? Long-suffering. I got a really hard time with long-suffering, especially when it's in the line at the grocery store, right? Especially when I'm driving my car and there's like 10 seconds of traffic in front of me, right? I've got a real problem with patience, and I am super fast to point out the inadequacies and the sins and transgressions and inconsistencies of others. I'm, I'm gifted in the area, aren't you? But with myself, oh boy, I'm a little more reticent to do that, aren't you? And here you have God who looks at us and says these people, they're I mean, there's so, we have so many problems, folks. And here you have God ready to pull the, literally pull the trigger to finally put an end to all of this nonsense and all of this evil and sin and death itself. And the reason why he's waiting to pull that trigger is because he wants people to choose him. He does not want people to lose their ability to make a decision for him and to respond to his patience. Folks, if God would, were to have his way with me, I would not be standing here today. I may as well be a pile of dust already. If God was as impatient with me as I am impatient with everybody else, I might as well be a pile of dust, folks. And probably you'd be in the same boat. Thank God for his patience. Say, well, why are we here? Why are we here then? Why doesn't God just do it? Why doesn't he just end it? Why doesn't he just finish it? Why is it taking so long? It's because he is showing you his grace. You want to understand why the hymn writer said amazing grace because God gives us the opportunity and gives us the opportunity and gives us the opportunity. We don't respond to him. We're obstinate to him. We're, we're angry at him. We're impatient toward him. We are aloof toward him. 
we could care less about him. And here he extends his arms and waits and waits and waits. And it enrages God to see the ungodliness and the unholiness and the evil and the death and the suffering and the sin on, in his world that he created. It enrages him. And all he has to do is pull that trigger and it will all be over and all change. And he will bring in a new heaven and a new earth and it will all change and it will all be redeemed. But he waits and waits and waits for us to respond. And he is patient with us. I hear people, we, I mean, we get upset. Why is it that God healed this person? And God didn't heal this person. It seems so unfair. We prayed and prayed and prayed for this to happen. We prayed and prayed for this person to be healed and they died. It seems so unfair. And yet person over here seems to have gotten healed by God. It seems so unfair. My word, folk, what a perspective that is. It's a wonder God does anything at all. It's a wonder that he does it all. It's a wonder that he has so much patience with us that he would do something in our lives. It's a wonder, folk. Just to see, I, I mean, I've seen the miraculous in my, in my life very rarely, but I have seen it less than a handful of times. I would say that I've seen the supernatural in front of my very eyes. Folks, I'm thankful to have seen it at all. Because when God does those things, our response shouldn't be, well, why does he do it for this one? And he doesn't do it for this one. Our response should be, he did it. That's a glimpse of what is to come. That's a teaser. That's a trailer. You know how they play those trailers for movies on the screen, right? And you watch the trailer. And most of the time, you can tell by the trailer if the movie's any good or not. Right? You can sit there and watch movie trailers all day. And you say, this one I'm going to see, but this one I'm not interested in. Let me tell you, when God does something supernatural in a micro sense, and he heals somebody or he does something, and you say, this is clearly, this is undeniably the work of God in this individual's life. Folks, you shouldn't be jealous. You should rejoice because God is saying, I'm just giving you a trailer. This is what is to come. When I pull the trigger, I'm going to do that all the time. In everybody's life, it's all going to change. I'm going to wipe out sin and death and evil, and there'll be no more of it. That's where you say amen. In a church, people say amen to that. In a movie theater, I'm not sure, but in a church, people say amen to that. Folks, that should be the perspective. The perspective that we should have is, hey, I've got another day to choose today. Thank God I've got another day to choose. Thank God for his grace and his patience with me. I've got one more day to breathe the breath of life because God gave it to me, you see. And his patience with little old me keeps on running on. Isn't that delightful? Isn't that just wonderful? Isn't that grace just so amazing? No wonder that hymn writer said that. No wonder. I mean, that guy was a slave trader. 
That, he was a nasty slave trader, treated people like garbage. And when God touched his life, he said, oh my goodness, my perspective has changed. My, his grace is amazing. Thank God he waits, folks. Thank God he waits. Thank God he gives you one more chance to decide. Are you going to serve me today or are you not going to? Hopefully, every day of your life, you make that straight. And you say, today I will serve the Lord. Come what may, I will serve the Lord. That's it. I pray that in 2024, you get to a place where you have so much conviction about the second coming of Christ that you actually believe that it could actually happen. <laughs> a global supernatural event that will turn the tables on sin and death and evil once and for all. I pray that you get to a place of conviction about it. It doesn't mean you turn into a nutcase and start selling your house and go wait on the top of the hill, you know, with an umbrella in your hand for Jesus to come and snatch you. That doesn't mean that. It means you reorient your life and your priorities and you realize, oh man, my time on this earth is short. It's short. God gave me another day today by his grace. I better not squander it. I better make the most of it. I better decide that I'm going to serve him today because wouldn't you know it? He gave me one more day. Boy, he's so good. Boy, he has so much grace. And I pray that you would get to that place where you would truly say, we would truly say in 2024, whatever happens, folks, whatever, and who knows what's going to happen, we would truly be able to say, my, his grace today in 2024 is still amazing. Would you stand with me this last, this last day of 2024 and take your emblems with me, and we're going to take communion one last time here. If you're online, you can head to your fridge get a little piece of bread, get some juice, and you are part of us as well. Whoever's there watching, you can, you can participate as well. We're not going to be long with this, but I want you to see the significance that this is the last time we get to do this in 2024. If you'd like an emblem, you'd like to participate, we can hand them to you. You've got kids in the room, no problem at all. I want to encourage you as parents to get your kids into communion early in life and not to be afraid of it. It's healthy. Think of it as spiritual medicine, okay? Medicine for the soul. That's what communion is. It reorients our lives, helps us to remember the basics that Jesus came, that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that Jesus' blood makes the difference and forgives us and atones for our sin, and that Jesus will come again. This bread, if you want to just pull off the top layer, this is a picture of the body of Jesus and also the body of Christ of which we are now a part. And Jesus said to take this bread, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Would you partake with me today? And Jesus, at that last supper, he said, this cup is the new covenant 
in my blood. That's the covenant of grace. That's the time that we live in, where he holds out his arms outstretched to us, his blood already shed as an atonement for our sin. And he welcomes us with those outstretched arms and says, come, come and receive my grace. Would you partake of the juice with me? Thank you, Lord. We're so grateful today. And we pray one last time as a, as a body here in this little movie theater, as a, as a body of Christ, as your people. And we pray together one last time uh, today. And we ask, Lord, that uh, you would just help us again with your patience and with your grace to put you first, to seek you first. Whatever would happen in this upcoming new year, that by the end of it, Lord, we would be able to say we still hold on to the hand of Jesus through it all. We pray your blessing upon each household. Lord, I think of those who are just struggling in, in, in body. I've heard from people who have family members in hospital this week, people who are recovering from different things, from falls and so on. There's people at home with flus and COVID and all kinds of things. In the name of Jesus, I pray your blessing upon each household, O oh God, that the Lord would keep us, would be gracious to us, would cause his face to shine upon us and give us peace. We pray to that end together. And everyone said, amen. God bless you today. Boy, oh boy, you should walk around and shake each other's hand and wish each other a happy new year and go home and get some rest. <laughs> and enjoy yourselves. Your kids are home from school. God bless you. May you enjoy your time together, everyone. We will see you next week in the year 2024.